Father God, thank you so much for a chance to dive into your word, uh, understand you better, see your plan, uh, see your compassion and how you dealt with uh, your people. God, I just thank you for this moment. Thank you for this study, for a chance to gather together um, in a way that honors you uh, in a world that's not gathering together. So God, I just thank you for this. I thank you for the fellowship and most importantly, the conversation that is surrounded by wanting to know you deeper. Uh, I pray that that spirit continues and grows within these walls and in this community. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So if, uh, if you remember last week, we discussed chapters 12 through 14, uh, which deals with the Passover, the final plague in Egypt, and then the physical exodus from Egypt. The, the Israelites marching out of Egypt, plundering the Egyptians, um, the Egyptians deciding to follow them into the Red Sea and God crushing them with walls of water. And the Israelites have now escaped. And so the Passover was the first sacrifice that we see performed by the Israelites with rules and ceremony around it. And it's before the law was instituted. And the Passover ceremony very much represents the cross and the sacrifice that Jesus made. In fact, Paul, the apostle, even calls Jesus our Passover lamb. And then from that moment and from that act of faith to do what God had said in performing the Passover, they get their escape from Egypt and their escape from bondage and slavery and their freedom. And that is where chapter 15 picks up. It's their reaction to that. And I just want to remind you what we talked about in the Q&A portion last week is that as we've gone through Genesis and now Exodus and where we're at in the story of Exodus, I think it's a very good reminder of the spiritual journey that people take in that Genesis is the story of origins. It's where everything came from, including people, uh, including the re marriage, the, the universe. Everything that God created has a beginning. Um, and so do we. Every single one of us has a beginning. But Exodus is the story after failure, oppression, to be redeemed and to be saved. And so everybody has a Genesis story. Everybody has a beginning. Everybody has a place where they came from. But not everybody has had the chance yet to have redemption. You can look at your past and you can see the struggle, or maybe you know somebody who's still in the struggle and is looking for their Exodus moment. And this chapter 15 is after the Exodus moment, the reaction. Um, and I think it's appropriate to just talk about this and dig into this because it's such a beautiful moment. Because Moses, right after they escape and they're on the other side of the Red Sea and the horses and chariots and the Egyptians are gone. They're wiped out by the Red Sea. Um, maybe a little chariot wheel comes floating to the top of the surface and they're free. There's nothing holding them back anymore. They're completely free. 
and it's a brand new life. And their response to that is worship. Moses sings. And so what I want to point out before we dig into the scripture is just the general principle, the reaction of if God has redeemed you, if you recognize everything you no longer have to deal with, the bondage of sin and the security you have in eternity because of the redemption from Jesus, what is your reaction? And so Sunday morning, when we come together and the music starts, that's what we should be thinking about because our reaction should be open praise and worship and singing a song, recognizing our redemption. And that's what Moses does here. And the children of Israel follow. So let's pick it up. Verse one, then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed generously or gloriously, generously. What was I reading? The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song and he has become my salvation. He is my God, I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. So even in just the first two verses, he's recognizing that this is what they experienced is salvation, freedom, redemption. And then just as a little note, I haven't seen this in commentaries, but I can't miss it since we recently talked about Revelation. I think it's interesting that the first line is, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously the horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Because, and you know, I don't know to the depths, I don't know if I'm going too far with what I'm looking at, but the horse and the rider being thrown into the sea. In Revelation 13, the beast, the Antichrist, comes out of the sea. And in Revelation 6, the first seal that's open, the rider on the white horse represents the Antichrist. And so I don't know if this is Moses, not only celebrating the victory that they've had of actually horses and chariots being thrown into the sea, and also projecting some instance of what the future will hold when Jesus returns, because the Antichrist is a horse rider who comes out of the sea in Revelation 13. So just pointing that out. Um, take that for what it's worth, take it with a grain of salt. But I couldn't miss it. It just stuck in my mind when I read it. So the, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. He, his chosen captains are also drowned in the sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. So Moses is recapping what has gone on in a very poetic and beautiful way. 
But I think that's important in our own lives to even just recognize and stop and praise. And when we're praising and worshiping, to remember why. What has God done for us? To look back on our story of redemption so that we come to him with the right heart of worship. And that's what Moses is doing. And he's leading the entire congregation of Israel in that prayer. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? And that's a great spot in his song. He says, who is like you, God? Who is like you, glorious in holiness? And this is an exemplary moment in Hebrew poetry, because Hebrew poetry, unlike American poetry, where we often try to rhyme at the end of a stanza, at the end of a sentence, instead of rhyming words, they use parallel ideas, and they repeat it stronger. And so saying, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods, is saying, wow, God is like no other. And then he uses an incredibly strong word, who is like you, glorious in holiness. And God's holiness is going to be the subject of the next book in Leviticus, because God is set apart. He is unlike anything other. That is the definition of holiness. And when you really grapple and wrestle with the idea of holiness, you see this. What Moses is saying is, who is like God? And in this study, as we go through scripture, you see in its connection and God's amazing ability to storytell, foreshadow, predict the future before it happens, who is like God? Who could do this? No one but him. He is unlike any other. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will make hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them by the greatness of your arm, they will be still as a stone till your people pass over the Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. That is an amazing saying. And Jesus, during his redemptive story on the cross, the last thing he says is, it is finished, which could also be trans translated, it is paid in full. And so this idea of redemption in Exodus is that God's people had been purchased. And the idea of redemption in the gospel is that our sin was purchased and was, our debt was paid in full on the cross. I also think this general moment in here where you're talking about fear and dread will fall on them by the greatness of your arm. They will be as still as a stone till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. That verse 16 talking about the enemies of the Israelites as they head into the promised land and how afraid they will be of the Israelites because they have heard the story about what God did for them. Now, amazingly, as we head through Exodus and into Leviticus and Numbers, what you're going to see is the people. Moses sends in 12 spies into the land of Canaan before they go to conquer it. And only two of the 12 
had any faith. Ten of them said, the people in the land are too big, they're too numerous, they're like giants to us, we're like ants to them. No way can we conquer the promised land. And then Joshua and Caleb are the only two who come back and say, God is bigger than our enemies. Let's do this. This is what God has called us to do. And because of the fear of the people, God makes them wander in the desert for 40 years. And he gets rid of the generation of fear. And then the next generation, led by Joshua, leads them into the promised land. And the interesting thing about that is in the book of Joshua, when we get there, Rahab tells Joshua that the people of Jericho were terrified of the Israelites because they had heard about what the Israelites' God can do. And so Moses is here understanding the power of God, the power of what they just went through, and what the rest of the Israelites' enemies are going to be thinking because they're going to hear about what God did to Egypt, the strongest power, the strongest nation on the earth. They're all going to think, we can't take these people. They're all going to be afraid. But the Israelites, rather than look at God, look at their circumstance and opposition. But Moses here, in this moment, in his moment of praise, in the understanding of his redemption, says, no, the people will be, have fear of God when they've heard his story. And I think that's true. That's why I'm so glad we're going through the whole story. Because the awe and respect in the fear of God that comes when you understand how great his authority is. It's irreplaceable, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, according to Solomon. So you will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever, for the horses of Pharaoh went into the sea, his chariots, his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the children of Israel went out on dry land in the midst of the sea. And then following that, Miriam, Moses' sister, Moses and Aaron's sister, repeats much of what Moses said. Here it is, verse 20. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. So Miriam leads the women of the congregation, and they sing the same song. And so worship is felt among the whole population after their salvation. And then a little interesting piece. They're out wandering in the desert, and they're in a place where the waters are really bitter, and they can't drink it. It's gross. Um, And God tells Moses to knock over a tree into the water, and then it makes the water sweet, and they can drink it. And it was just this sort of Fun miracle at the end of chapter 15. And water, interesting that that story happens right after their redemption because water is often connected to redemption. What did Jesus say to the woman at the well? To those who drink the water I give them will never thirst again. So that's the end of chapter 15. And then you have moving into chapter 16, a different attitude. So the people, and we're going to pick up in verse 3. They're wandering in the wilderness, and even though they just experienced all the plagues in Egypt, they just experienced God separating the waters, a pillar of cloud and fire guiding them, 
They had just experienced the death of the, of the Egyptians coming after them, and they just sang the song of worship. Um, shortly after that, they start complaining. And so none of us are like that ever, but yeah, we are. So verse three, and the children of Israel said to them, oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. So after God has taken care of them this much, they start going, God will never take care of us. I can't believe you're leading us out into the desert to die. Why did God do all of this if he's just going to let us die in the desert and not eat meat and bread. And remember when we got to eat meat and bread as slaves in Egypt and get whipped to make bricks all the time? That was, those were the days. Those were great. I can't believe we're free now. That's horrible. And so that's the attitude of the Israelites. Shortly after their praise, they start complaining because life catches up with them and suddenly realize that in a broken world, life ain't perfect. And they don't have trust that God is going to take care of them. So what does God do? God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to rain down bread from heaven to give you life, the bread of life. I'm going to rain down bread from heaven, but this is how I'm going to do it. You only get to collect as much as you can. You only get to collect what you need for the day. If you collect more than what you need for the day, whatever you collected in abundant supply will just grow moldy and get filled with worms because you have to trust that I'm going to take care of you tomorrow. This is Part of why in Jesus' prayer, in the Lord's prayer that he, he tells us when, when the disciples ask him, teach us then, Lord, how to pray, why he says, give us this day our daily bread. It's understanding that we can have the faith in God every day. He doesn't need to give us all the answers or the whole plan forever. We just need to trust him with today. And so he says, I'm going to test you I'm going to test your faith, and you need to learn to rely on me. Only take what you need each day for six days. But then on the sixth day, take a double portion, because on the seventh day you will not gather anything because it's the Sabbath. And that's what chapter 16 is about. It sets up the Sabbath. Again, before the law is established, the Sabbath is established. And the Sabbath was really established in Genesis chapter 1. Um, but this is the practical establishment among the Israelite people. Work for six days on the seventh day. Rest, it is for God. And so God is setting up the Sabbath and testing their faith. How often have I, I'm sure you relate to this, I can't. How often have I wanted to know more than God will let me know? How many times have I been frustrated by God's plan for my life because I didn't see the next step. I just had to trust him that what I was doing today was going to work out tomorrow. Uh, last night, we had a meeting with the elders and uh, we were just, during our devotional time, we were talking about our darkest moments. And I remembered a time when 
I was finishing up the last couple of semesters of college. And prior to that year, my roommate moved out. So I had to find a different place to live because I couldn't afford the rent on my own. So I moved into another place, and I hated that place. It was small. Um, that, that part didn't bother me. I'd lived in small places almost my whole life. But it was small, it was cold, and the winter was brutally cold, kind of like today. And it cost me so much to heat the house that I couldn't afford it. So I had to turn the heat down to basically just not have the pipes freeze. That was the level of heat I could afford. Well, I couldn't afford it, but I had to do it to not die. And I remember getting like an electric heater that I, I sat in front of um, at night. I would sleep on the couch in the living room because my bedroom was too cold. I'd sleep in the couch in the living room where I had a close enough outlet for this electric heater to sit in front of me and I would just freeze to death all winter long, wishing there was a way out of the situation. And knowing that everything I had saved was gone, all my financial aid that went above and beyond tuition was spent on basically surviving. And my money was going away. I was racking up credit cards and I couldn't afford to live that way. And I was starting to sell off possessions and trying to get to a place where I could fit everything I owned into my car because that's where I was going to end up living. Because I knew that. And that was a moment for me where I was looking and I was, I was working full-time. I was going to school full-time. I was volunteering practically full-time at the church and interning in the youth ministry and doing everything I believed God had wanted me to do. And I said, how am I in this position? How, how did I end up here? How did it get this dark? And I didn't know the future, so I was frustrated with God. But I just had to trust through that process, which was almost impossible, and I was so close to giving up on so many occasions. And then the way out of that situation was a slap in the face. Because what happened was my best friend, um, who I actually happened to be his youth leader for a while, but we were only a few years apart because I had recently graduated and he was at the end of high school, um, we started going to college at the same time for ministry. And so someone I had been a mentor for and became a close friend with when we started to go to college together, he needed a roommate in a new place. So my expenses would go down and I could live again and get myself back in order and I could start paying off my debt. So that was my way out. But the reason he needed a new roommate in the town he was moving to was because he got a job as a youth pastor. So someone who I had mentored had now leapfrogged me in life in the direction that God wanted me to go in. And I couldn't understand how even my way out was a way for God to say, you're not there yet. And I was so frustrated. But it, in that moment, in that place, is where I met my wife. And I finished college, and I met Juliet, and I had gotten, out of, I had gotten myself out of credit card debt and I was able to move forward with my life. And we ended up not planning it. Both of us, my friend Brian and I, we got married within a week of each other. So even knowing that we were both planning to get married, we didn't know when each other was going to get married. And we planned our wedding separately without consulting each other. And we got married within a week of each other and were each other's best men. 
and didn't have to deal with any sort of strange length of time where we were going to have to be renting on our own and being not able to afford the apartment because we got married in the same month, one week apart, through our own individual planning without consulting each other because God's providence was in that. And if it wasn't for Juliet, after everything I had gone through, I don't know that I would have had the strength and boldness to pursue the career in ministry after what I dealt with. And so it all came together in the big picture. So you got to trust God with each individual step. And that's the thing that he's teaching the Israelites. In this chapter, they don't just get manna. They do get some quail. God says he's he's basically going to stuff them with quail um, because they're complaining about not eating meat. And there's actually historic reference to these birds that would uh, migrate and travel really long distances over this, like over northern Africa and in in the Middle East. Um, And they would fly really low and get really tired. And there's actually Egyptian pictures or art uh, depicting people catching these birds with a net on the bush because they were, they were so exhausted from their migration that they were very easy to catch. And these are the same type of birds that God places. So there's historical reference to these types of birds traveling around this area of the world. So that is a very easy thing for God to have put in this book and for us to understand historically that it makes sense that that's how he fed the people in this area of the world. But they also had manna for the rest of the time they were wandering in the desert. Now, interestingly, in, uh, in verse 15, it says, So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to another, What is it? Meaning, when the bread of heaven came down, when manna came down, they looked at the stuff on the ground, which looked like dew on the ground, and they said, What is it? Which the Hebrew word for manna would be man, which translates what is it? So that's basically what they named the stuff is what is it? Um, so just interestingly about that, but they also were uh, told, God told Moses to have them collect an entire jars full, an omer, which is about two quarts uh, towards the end of chapter 16, to collect an omer of manna and put it in a jar. So they, they collected about two quarts or a half gallon of manna and put it in a jar and they carried it around with them all the time they were wandering through the desert as a reminder for how God provided for them, and they could share that story with their children. And that jar, once the tabernacle was built and the Ark of the Covenant was built, that, was, that jar was placed in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, what is manna? Bread from heaven, bread that gave them life. That sounds like Jesus. And so Jesus is there, represented in the Ark of the Covenant through the jar, of manna. And that is chapter 16. Chapter 17, after all that complaining and after dealing with all of that, it starts this way. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on the journey from the wilderness of sin. But by the way, that's a capital S. So it's talking about an actual place, not talking about sin like the not obeying God. It's talking about the area around the Sinai Peninsula. So in the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people contended with Moses, shocker, and said, give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? 
or really it should probably say test the Lord. And the people thirsted there for the water and the people complained against Moses and said, why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? This is their consistent argument. After everything God has done for them, why are you doing this to us? Wouldn't it have been better to just kill us in Egypt? Why have you brought us out here to die? God has provided for you all along the way, and you keep forgetting that he's going to provide for you again. So Moses cried out to the people saying, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, go before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. So even though God has provided for them and God has used Moses as the leader of these people, who Moses will bring them the law. Moses has been the, the key figure in getting them out of Egypt and having them cross the Red Sea and commu- communicating with God so that they could get the bread from heaven and the quail. He's provided food for them. What do they do? They reject him. And Moses says, what shall I do with these people? They are ready to stone me. They're ready to kill Moses, the guy who redeemed them from the bondage of slavery they are ready to kill. I hope you can already tell where that's going, the parallel. Jesus, who came in the order of Melchizedek, in the priesthood of Melchizedek, came as a rabbi, as a prophet, and was preaching and teaching the way to get to heaven. He offered up for the people himself as a sacrifice. And in his teaching, all of the Pharisees and Sadducees that challenged him were always silenced by his wisdom to a point where even in, during the Passion Week, they no longer asked him any questions because they got sick of being humiliated by the wisdom of Jesus. But what did they do? They rejected the guy who was there to save them. Moses, the one who saved them, gets rejected and they want to kill him. They do the same thing with Jesus. It says, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out so that the people may drink. And Moses did so uh, in sight of the elders of Israel, so he called the name of the place Messiah and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, this moment is something you should keep in your memories for when we get to numbers. Because Moses strikes the rock and water comes out of it. Now, again, Jesus is the one who said, those who, that, those who drink of the water that I give them will never thirst. Jesus is also the rock. We call Jesus the rock of my salvation. Um, and water is a life-giving tool. And it's always metaphored that way in Scripture. But in the book of Numbers, Moses will be irritated with the people. And so interestingly, the first time God tells Moses, strike the rock and water will come out of it. The second time he tells Moses to speak to the rock and it'll bring water. And instead, Moses strikes the rock again and blood and water come out of the rock, Um, which we'll talk more about when we get into Numbers and you see that scene play out. But interestingly, 
blood and water is what came out of Jesus when he was pierced on the cross by the, by the Roman soldier. So this picture will be played out again um, slightly differently in numbers, so remember it. Now, the next part is interesting. Now, Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim, and Moses said to Joshua, come, choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow, I will stand on top of the hill uh, with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So the Amalekites are there, led by Amalek. They're going to fight with Israel. Moses says, Joshua, you go be the captain. You go fight, uh, you go fight Amalek. And then Moses, Aaron, and Hur are going up to the top of a mountain. Moses is holding on to a staff. That's the picture. Moses is on top of a staff. So that's the leader that you want. He's just holding a stick on top of a hill as Joshua does the fighting. Um, I joke because you'll see what happens next. So Aaron and Hur are with Moses. He says, and so it was when Moses held up his hand with the staff in it that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone, put it under him, and he sat down on it. Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. So these people were slaves. They weren't trained soldiers. Um, They're now among in this battle with Amalek, and every time Moses holds God the staff, the same staff that, you know, the Red Sea was split, all that stuff. He's holding it up in the air, when his hands are up in the air, the Israelites are winning. But when he gets tired and he puts it down, the Israelites are losing. So Aaron and Hur go, okay, let's make a seat for Moses. You sit down on it and we'll hold your hands up in the air so you don't have to get tired. And then they win. This is like a weird, interesting thing that happened. But this story plays out through the rest of the Old Testament. Because Amalek, the leader of the Amalekites, you'll see that term again. You'll see these people again. Because when King Saul takes over in 1 Samuel, his major failure is with the Amalekites. God tells Saul to go defeat the Amalekites and destroy them all. And Samuel tells Saul to do this. Saul conquers and beats the Amalekites, but then he takes some of the flock Instead of killing the flock like he was supposed to, he takes some of the animals with him. And he also saves, he leaves the king of the Amalekites, Agag, alive. And Agag's family leaves them alive. And so he didn't follow through on what Samuel told him to do, what God told Samuel to tell Saul to do. And this is the reason that God replaces Saul with David as king. This is Saul's failure. And because of Saul's failure, God lets him know that the Amalekites are going to be someone to be still be dealt with. And this gets played out in the book of Esther. Because when you see in the book of Esther, as they're under the authority of the Medo-Persian Empire, the king Xerxes at the time, he has a, they call him by his title, 
in the book of Esther, but it's King Xerxes. When he is reigning, he has a trusted servant named Haman who wants to kill all of the Jews. And Haman is an Agagite, which means a descendant of Agag, the king that Saul left alive. That entire story of Esther wouldn't have had to happen if Saul did what he was supposed to do. And this is, this is where you meet them in this first battle. And so the story with the Amalekites plays out through the rest of the Old Testament. So we'll, we'll reference this again when we get to those pieces of scripture. And then chapter 18, I'm not really going to get into it. Um, I'm just going to kind of explain what happens. Moses meets up with his father-in-law Jethro. And Jethro sees everything that's happening and how stressed out Moses is because everybody comes to Moses with their problems. And Jethro says to him, what is it, what is going on? What are you doing? And he, he tells Jethro everything that happened, everything that happened with the Egyptians, everything that God has done. And he's like, that's great. But what's with all of the, you know, all of the people coming to you all of the time? He goes, well, people come to me because they want to know what God has to say. And so they come to me and I tell them what to do. And Jethro basically says, that's horrible. That's a terrible idea. What you need to do is find people who you trust, who are strong in faith, and that, that you can trust to deal with smaller problems and have, you know, have them set up in different groups, like some over tens and then someone, another group over hundreds and another group over thousands so that you have leaders who are reporting to each other to deal with smaller problems. And then you, you and Aaron only have to deal with the, you know, the big, big stuff. Um, and that's sort of the advice that, that Jethro gives him. And this actually mimics the book of Acts. Because in the book of Acts, as the church is starting out, there is a moment where there's sort of a, an issue with widows not getting enough food or there's at least a perceived slight that the group of Jewish people who come from Israel and that area are getting more provisions for their widows than the group of, of Jewish people that, that who come from Greek-speaking regions of the world in the early church. And so the apostles decide, we shouldn't deal with that. We should be dealing with the continuing teaching and understanding and evangelizing of God's word. So they set up a group of deacons to take care of the needs of the people um, to deal with that issue. And so that mimics Jethro's advice. So you see the Old Testament and the New Testament mimicking each other in the beginning of some of the Hebrew religious practices with what Jethro is telling Moses to do and the same thing happening in the early church. And so that's, where you, that's what happens in Exodus 18. And so ultimately, as we get through this, what you see is the reaction of people after they've been redeemed. And it sort of reminds me of a, you know, the spiritual journey of, of us, you know, of Christians, because when we first get saved, when we first meet Jesus, when we first recognize we're free from the bondage of sin, that celebration and high that you have is amazing, but then life hits you and it's not all sunshine and lollipops. And you go, you start complaining because you don't see the whole picture. 
And you have to be reminded that God is there every step of the way, even if you can't see what the next step is. And so that's what chapters 15 through 18 are really about. It's the reaction after the redemption of the people and to know that it's still a struggle after you've been redeemed to live in a broken world, but to remember as you go through each day to trust God today because you can't see what's coming tomorrow, but he can and his plans are greater than yours. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word, for what it means. God, we thank you for your redemption and how the redemption of the Israelites foreshadowed the redemption of the world through your son. God, I thank you so much for my own redemption through Jesus and for everyone here who's experienced that. I pray for the world around us that hasn't and that you can use this body of believers to be a light that shines that message out to those who need to hear it so that they can come to you and be free from the bondage of sin and have security in eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.